So we're continuing through the book of Matthew this morning. And uh, before we get into the uh, scriptures for this morning, as usual, I want to review next, last week. We talked about last week. And uh, we're building upon knowledge here as we go through. And we want to make sure you retain this. You know, when I was in public school growing up, uh, the tests consist of you memorizing facts, spitting back on a test, whether it's through true or false or multiple choice or whatever it may be, or even long, short answer or long answer. Then the next day, I'd forget everything I put on a test. It's not geared towards long-term remembrance of what I was learning. But it comes to the Word of God. We want to remember it. We want to remember it. Okay, so let's... Uh, here's the first question I have for you regarding last week. What would the Hebrew name of Jesus be? Really? Uh, Yeshua or Joshua? Joshua would be the English transliteration of it. If you use if you use the J, um, what would be the Greek name of Jesus? John? Jesus. And uh, of course, there's a there's issue, always issues when you're transliterating from one language to the next. You're trying to find a letter in the language you're transliterating into that would match up with the sound that's coming from the primary language you're transliterating from. So when you come with Yeshua and you have a Y, but there's no Y in Greek, they take the closest thing they can find, and that's the I. Jesus. Remember what I said last week, that if you go to the King James 1611, there was no J being used yet in English language. It wasn't popularized until, you know, 50, 60 years later, after 1611 when the first King James came out. So you go to the 1611 King James, they don't have uh, J's in that translation at all. So every place you see a J in our current Bibles, you'll see an I in their Bibles. But the J came along and it was a uh, replaced, and they thought it was a, a better sound for the Y or for the I than the actual I we have in our own language. We're trying to convey a better, val- a better sound for the, the letter it's coming from. How long were two people betrothed for before they were actually married and began living together? One year. That's right. Very good. And what was this? What was the point of this betrothment? Yes. Yes. To see to test their faithfulness to each other, to see if they would be faithful. And what would happen if during this betrothment or engagement period, this one-year period, one of them was found unfaithful? What would happen? Stone them. Stone them. That's one thing that could happen. If the person who's uh, been unfaithful to demand the stoning, uh, what's the other thing that could happen? Annulment. So there was no divorce because they weren't officially married in our sense of the word here in America. But they, they did use the word married. In the Bible, but their form of marriage at that point does not mean you're living together, and it means you have not consummated the marriage. So there's a year period, and two things that can happen. The marriage can be annulled, and the person who's unfaithful, or persons who are unfaithful, can be stoned to death for their unfaithfulness. We talked about this word responsibility last week. What two words make up the one word responsibility? Tracy? Responsibility. Response and ability. Now, what was the purpose of even breaking this word down like that? What was the point of, point of saying it means response and ability? 
Tracy? To show that we're able to respond. That's right. If we're not able to respond to God's commands to us, how can we possibly respond a bull for breaking his commands? But the whole foundation of being responsible for breaking God's commands or being responsible to obey God's commands is that we have the ability to respond. There are some kind of theological circles going around that say we have no ability to respond. Yet God still holds us accountable for breaking his commands. Which is ridiculous. It, it defeats the purpose of the word itself. They can't use the word responsibility if we have no ability to respond properly. What kind of relative was Elizabeth of Mary? We don't know. We don't know. Uh, we looked at the word that's translated as cousin in the King James, and it simply means relative. Uh, we don't know how close a relative is. We know that she couldn't have been a relative on Mary's father's side, a close relative on that side, because uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias were of the tribe of Levi, whereas Joseph was of the tribe of Judah. Uh, we don't know how close a relative is. We know that she couldn't have been a relative on Mary's father's side, a close relative on that side, because uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias were of the tribe of Levi, whereas Joseph was of the tribe of Judah. But they, they could have, they're, they're relatives in some sense. Now, that, that word was used in the sense of just being a Jew, to a Jew. So there could have been something as general as that, or something as specific as being a close relative on Mary's mother's side, although we have no record of what tribe she was of. Now, if we had a record that Mary's mother was of the tribe of Judah, then could Elizabeth and Zacharias been close relatives? No, totally different tribes. Then we would have known that the word that's used for translators cousin in King James or, or relative in uh, other translations really just means she's another Jew who she's close friends with. That's what it would have meant. By, by that, they couldn't be cousins. Right. Yeah, but we don't have that information. So we can't say. All right, so now before we go into Matthew chapter 2 this week, <clears throat> I want to go into Luke chapter 2. Get some more information. Luke is very detailed, very specific about these things. He gives a lot of information that the other gospels don't give. So let's go to Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. And today's message is going to be titled, Exposing Myths Surrounding the Birth of Jesus. And some of these myths have been purported through songs or through movies about the birth of Jesus. But we're going to look at these uh, things and see what the Bible has to say about these things. And sometimes these myths are just people trying to fill in the gaps where the Bible doesn't fill in the gaps. And sometimes it's just completely opposite what the Bible says. So let's look at Luke chapter 2. Let's read through verse, uh, verse 20, starting in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinus was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of David and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, he was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. 
Now they were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will, be a, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away with them, or from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which, is, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they heard and seen as it was told to them. Now the first thing I want to point out, just a couple things as a side issue here is in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, it says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to some people, all people. So, the fact that Christ is born and comes into the world is good news for how many people? Now, wait a minute now. If God predestined eternity past that most people would go to hell, how could it be good news for them? Well, there you go. And then it goes on to say in verse 14, the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. On earth peace, bad will towards most men. Is that what it says? Good will towards men. Now if God predestined most people to go to hell, as some theology espouse, how could it be good will towards them? It couldn't be good will towards them. God doesn't have a good will towards them. He has a bad will towards them if that's true. Of course we know that's not true. But I want to look at some... Uh, some of the myths regarding this story. Now, one of the things you'll see in, in, in you know little movies about this issue, or you'll see even in songs, I think, is you'll see them traveling to Bethlehem from Nazareth, and Mary's kind of on a donkey. Now, do you see anything in this story about a donkey? I didn't see any mention of a donkey myself. Now, this would have been a long travel from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem, about 70 miles. We have no idea how they traveled this route. So the scriptures give no details. There's no mention of a donkey or even a donkey pulling a cart or any form of travel at all. Well, being that Mary was so close to giving birth, and being that Joseph is a just man, as we saw last week, a man who cares about his wife, who loves her, I'm sure he would have provided some kind of semi-comfortable form of travel. Uh, so I think we can assume this from Joseph's character. We have no idea if it was a donkey, a donkey in a cart, or what it may have been, or a camel even, for all we know. Uh, but people will assume these things and try to kind of fill in the gaps. Now we have this idea that they were rejected by like a modern-day hotel and a hotel manager. You know, the inn and the innkeeper. That's where we have this idea that they came to this hotel in Bethlehem and uh, there was a no-vacancy sign up lit up in front and, and the hotel manager said, sorry, there's no room for you here. But that's not what we see here. We see the word inn here. Now what is an inn in the Scriptures? Well, it usually refers to a guest room of a regular house. We have a guest room right behind me in this regular house. And it'd be like someone coming and saying, no, I'm sorry, we have a couple of guests in the guest room now. We have no room for you. 
take Luke chapter 22 and verses 7 through 12. We see the same Greek word used here. And so let's see what it's translated as in, in this passage. Luke 22. And we'll start in verse, uh, verse 7 and read through verse 12. But the word is in uh, verse 11. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he, Jesus, sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? He said to them, Behold, when you, re- when you entered, have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then he shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover of my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnace upper room, there make race. So we see here in Luke 22, the same word used, translated as guest room, the same word translated as in, in Luke 2.7. And the guest room is further described in verse 12 as an upper room in a regular house. So this in that, that they're referring to here in Luke 2 is most likely an upper guest room of a normal house. And since Joseph was traveling back to where he was from, Bethlehem, it was most likely a relative's house that he was trying to stay with. Um, and because he was traveling back to Bethlehem for the census, and all his other relatives who were from Bethlehem were traveling back to Bethlehem for the census, that probably is why there's no room for them at the end. Because all the relatives are coming back at the same time for the census, and these upper rooms, these guest rooms, are being taken over all at one time. But let's, let's, let's look at another reason why there might not have been room for them at the end. Because, you know, if you have family around, sometimes you just kind of pile in. You know, you sleep wherever you can. I mean, that, when we have Angela's family come up at times past all at once, or brothers or, or her nephews and nieces, we just kind of just sleep on the floor if you can. Find a space if you can. But if you're a lady, and you're pregnant, about to give birth, and you have to have a place to give birth, do you want a corner in a house where all of your your husband's relatives are at? Where it's real crowded? No, you don't want something like that. So that may be another reason why, that I proposed to you of, of why she, you know, there was no room for the inn. There might have been room for them to find some place to sleep on the floor, but there was no room for the inn because the census, people traveling back, this is not a hotel that's specifically for lots of rooms, and therefore here, take a room. These are, these are single rooms probably on top of a normal house as a guest room. And it ran out of space quickly because of the census, got all the relatives traveling back at the same time. So since this wasn't a hotel, they also weren't rejected by a hotel manager or an innkeeper. They see an innkeeper mentioned here at all? I should not mention that innkeeper, but just about every Christmas pageant you see at the you know, local churches around this time of the year, they always have an innkeeper. There's a part for an innkeeper being played, and he said, nope, there's no room in the inn. But you, you don't see anything like that here. So it's not a hotel. It's not a, there's no innkeeper. There's no rejection by the hotel management because they have no vacancy anymore. You simply miss that have been purported over time. And some people, I mean, probably just some honest thing. People are trying to fill in the gas. Well, we need to be real careful about what we say about the Word of God. Now, don't you just love at the Christmas time all those nativity scenes where you see the, the stable and you see the wise men, you see the shepherds, and you see Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus in the manger. But do you see any mention of a stable here? A wooden stable? See a mention of that? Uh, now, 
people would probably think that there's a wooden stable because Jesus was placed in a manger. Now, what's a manger? It's a feeding trough for animals feed. So people have assumed that because there's a, there's a manger or a feeding trough, and because feeding trough are usually where the animals stay, you know, modern day would be the barn, sometimes out in the field where there's a big uh, you know, bale of hay, uh, they assumed that they were in a, you know, at that point in time, a barn, a wooden stable. But we see no mention of this. And this, this isn't even historically correct, because in those days, in, in Jerusalem, animals didn't stay in wooden stables. They stayed in caves. They stayed in caves. Uh, so they were probably actually uh, residing in caves. But we don't even have the, the details about that. We're, we're assuming that based upon the, the timeline then, the, the historicity of the timeline, what was going on at that point in time, but I think it's a better guess to say cave than it is to say a wooden stable. Um, so the scriptures simply say there was no room for them at the inn and that he was laid in a manger. I do think that we can safely assume that he was probably born in a cave since they had to have some kind of shelter for Mary as she gives birth. She's not giving birth out in the field. okay? And Joseph, being a just man, would have found some kind of shelter for her. And not only that, after the baby's born, it needs some kind of shelter itself. And um, to somewhat substantiate this idea that there, he was born in a cave, I want to give you some quotes from early church fathers. Okay? The first one I have is from Justin Martyr, around 160 A.D. And this is a guy who was around the same time as Polycarp, learned from Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So this is like giving the information one generation from the disciples. Okay? And Justin Martyr said, When the child was born in Bethlehem, since Joseph could not find an inn, he took up his lodging place in a certain cave near the village. While they were there, Mary brought forth the Christ and placed him in the manger. So we have Justin Martyr, 160 A.D., saying Jesus was born in a cave. Origen, around 248 A.D. Now listen to what he has to say. This is pretty interesting. Let him know that in conformity with the narrative in the Gospel regarding his birth, there is displayed in Bethlehem the cave where Jesus was born and the manger in the cave where he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. And this site is greatly talked of in the surrounding places, even among the enemies of the faith. They said that in this cave was born Jesus, who was worshipped and reverenced by the Christians. Now, I don't know how much truth there is to this, them knowing exactly which cave it is and knowing exactly which manger it is. Uh, you know, this is before the Roman Catholic, this is 248 AD, so before the Roman Catholic thing where they say, oh, I found the, the, you know, the cloth Jesus was wrapped in and his burial cloth and just trying to make money off of people by saying, I have these relics that I can sell to you. You know, kind of like a collector's item. So we don't know how much you know, truth there is to that, but it's, it's not very far removed from when it happened. Only a couple hundred years. But the point is, I want to make to you, is the fact that he's mentioning a cave once again, just like Justin Martyr is. So I think with these kind of good sources, we can say that he was probably born in a cave. He definitely wasn't born in a wooden stable because they didn't use that kind of shelter for animals back then. Okay? All right, let's let's go back to Matthew chapter 2. Yes? I just wanted to point out that uh, it was not a very silent night. Oh, yeah, probably not. Well, the angels were singing and praising the Lord. Probably not. And when a woman gets birth, it's not very silent either, usually. So, Matthew chapter 2, and let's read uh, verses 1 uh, through 12. 
And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he has seen his star in the east, and hath come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for, the, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. All right, so let's go into some more myths here about this, this story. There's a song uh, sung around Christmas time. It's called Three Kings. Now, see any mention of three kings in this story? Really? No three kings, huh? I guess you shouldn't be singing that song anymore. Uh, but there's no three kings here. What we see are wise men coming from the east. Now, what are wise men? Well, the wise men is come from the Greek word that, mean, that just means magi. It's where we get our English word magic from. Magi. Okay? Uh, these magi were experts in astrology and interpretation of dreams and other occult practices. Uh, the same Greek word that's translated as wise men in Matthew 2 is translated as sorcerer in Acts 13.6, talking about Bar-Jesus, and translated as, El- as translated sorcerer in Acts 13.8 in describing Elemis, who are both enemies of the faith, if you read the descriptions in Acts 13 for yourself. But these, these magi obviously weren't wicked wise men or sorcerers since they came to worship Jesus. Matthew 2, verse 2, and Matthew 2, verse 11. They came to worship. Does a sorcerer or someone involved in occult practice come to worship Jesus? No. So they weren't experts in these other occult practices like Elemis was and Bar-Jesus was and maybe other magi from the East were, but they were experts in astrology and they were experts in interpreting dreams. And we see a lot of this in this account itself, involving stars and involving dreams here where God's speaking to them. So God spoke to them through dreams, and I don't think God speaks to wicked people either, through dreams. So they were experts in astrology, and since they followed a star to where Jesus was. Now, what about the number of wise men? Here we see three wise men, or three kings. Does it say how many wise men came? No, it doesn't. Now, why do people assume that there were three wise men? Yes? Three gifts. But does it have to be only three people to give three gifts? No, that's, that's kind of a silly way of interpreting the Bible, isn't it? So it doesn't say how many there are, and people assume these things. They're just because there's three gifts given to them. Now, where were these magi from, and how did they know about Jesus? Yes? Uh, I'm guessing Babylon or Persia, uh, maybe from Daniel's prophecies. 
the, the uh, well, we were just talking about the Nazroth and all that stuff, and that's all kind of gelling. And Interesting. Um, these Magi, we don't know for sure where they came from. We know they came from the east. We don't know how far east. Uh, the Three Kings song will say they came from the Orient. Uh, now, I wouldn't say that. Uh, and I guess that's possible that it came all the way from the Orient and traveled that far, but I seriously doubt it. Um, we don't know exactly where they came from, but John made a good point, and it's, it's what I'm going to bring as well. It's possible, we can make some educated guesses here. It's possible that Daniel the prophet would have, and who was also an interpreter of dreams, the author of the book of Daniel, could have taught the Magi at his time about the coming of the Christ. Very possible. Daniel would have known about the, uh, the prophecy in Numbers 24:17 about the star and about the Messiah coming. No, numbers was around. The, the five books of the, of the Old Testament were around at that point in time. And he would, have, he would have probably taken the opportunity to share with the Magi. And, and the Magi of Daniel's time would have looked up to him for several reasons. One, and Daniel too, he saved their lives. Nebuchadnezzar came about and said to his own Magi, his own people, he said, well, tell me my dream and then interpret it for me. And they'd say, well, tell me the dream and we'll interpret for you. Stop trying to trick me. Tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Like, we're baffled. See, they didn't have God to get into Nebuchadnezzar's head or they didn't know the source of the dream's God so they couldn't tell him what the dream was. They can kind of make up an interpretation if he were to tell them the dream but they couldn't tell him the dream. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar was kind of smart. He was testing whether they really knew the God or the gods in his, his worldview. And of course, Daniel comes along, tells him the dream and the interpretation. And in doing so, save the Magi's life. The fact that he could even tell the dream at all. There are Magi focused on interpreting dreams. He'll be experts in this. The fact that he could do this, they looked up to him for that. And then finally, he was promoted by Nebuchadnezzar to the position of the chief administrator over all the Magi, or wise men, of Babylon. So Daniel had much ground for great influence among the Magi at this time. In fact, if legend kept moving on and his story was told over and over again, the Magi in years to come would have looked back and said, man, this guy was a great Magi, even though he wouldn't have called himself that. He could, have, he could tell this guy his dream and then interpret it for him. So even Magi's in years to come would have looked up to this Magi from the past, Daniel, who saved all these Magi and could interpret this dream. And I heard Daniel being a man of God who didn't fear man, he feared God, even to the point of his own life being put on the plate, didn't waste his influence with, with the Magi either. He didn't waste his time with them. He would have spoken the truth to them. He would have shared the truths found in the Torah with them that he knew. And part of this would have been Numbers twenty four seventeen, which is where this prophecy of the stars coming from. This prophecy given to Balaam by God. And if, if Daniel did this, it would have been passed down through a generation of Magi who are stargazers, who are always looking up at the sky as, as astrologers and being experts in astrology. And if any of this is true, then the Magi would have come from the area of Babylon, which is where Daniel was, in the east. So how do they know that this star was the star? Well, we don't know that either, but we do know that they were astrologers. So they could have been just looking in the sky, and then knowing the sky as well as they did, finding this huge abnormality in the sky and saying, what is that? And seeing something so special, they said, this must be the star that Daniel talked about, that famous magi from the past. 
Or God could have just given them some kind of special revelation through a dream or through a sign. We really don't know exactly how it came about. Now, what kind of star was this? Was this star a star as we define it today? So the stars that we see in the sky today, night, and we have this clear sky here in Kentucky, we can see almost all the stars, it seems like. It's nothing compared to living in New York City or Los Angeles, look through the fog and the, and the smog and everything else to see it. Uh, living out here in the country, is a very clear sky, not polluted by all the smoke you see in the city and all the cars. What kind of star was it? Well, I think it's unlikely that it was a normal star that we could consider it today, because stars as we know it today, in the sky, are big suns millions of light years away, billions of light years away at times. And uh, is the sun hot? It sure is. And imagine a big sun coming closer to our planet. What's it going to do to our solar system, first of all? It's going to throw it off. It's going to mess up. And not only that, it's probably going to scorch our earth, earth so badly that there's not going to be any life allowed to be able to live on this earth. Uh, the Greek word is aster, where we get our English word asteroid from. And this Greek word is used, it is used in the Bible in the sense of a normal everyday star that we think about today, in our, our term or the, our defi- that definition of the word. But it's also used to describe something other than a normal star as we define it. Let's look at a couple of examples. Matthew 24. So the same Greek word used in a different sense than a normal star as we, as we know it. A sun, billions of light years away. You know, the solar system. Okay? Matthew 24 and verse 29. Jesus talking about the last days here. He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, is this a star that's billions of light years away falling to earth? Uh, impossible. Stars are bigger than Earth. They're, they're much bigger. In fact, our sun, our star, our sun is much is, is smaller than most stars in the universe. And I think, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but millions of our Earths can fit in our sun. So little stars that are suns and other stars are not going to fall to our planet uh, because they're bigger than our planet. So it's probably referring to asteroids or some kind of something falling from outer space and falling to the Earth. And then we have Revelation chapter 6. And we just went through Revelation, and we talked about these things. Revelation 6, and verse 13. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree dropped its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And uh, in our discussion about this, going through Revelation, uh, when Tim Warren was teaching through this, we, we talked about it being a comet or a meteor, or an asteroid of some kind. Something, some kind of something falling from the heavens to earth, but not a literal star in the sky. Then you have Revelation chapter 8, and verse 10. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the, spring, on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Same word used for star here, falling from the heavens or heaven up above is aster. So we see it's not always used in the sense of a normal star, and I think it's highly unlikely uh, that it was a actual star up in the heavens that came close and led the the magi to Jesus. Yes. Uh, 
also, there is a, uh, a study or a video out called the Star of Bethlehem that says that it actually was a conglomeration of three stars that came together and aligned themselves and appeared as one large star. Interesting. I hadn't heard that. The Star of Bethlehem is the video. Yeah, in fact, uh, uh, Ellen Hingle has it. I can get it for you if you want to. In fact, we might want to look at it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I can get it for you. Yeah. So we don't know if this is a normal star or not, as we define the word. But the Greek word aster literally means a luminous body in the sky. That's what it means, a luminous body in the sky. So it could have been some kind of great light. In fact, in Exodus 13.21, we see it says this. And the Lord went before them, these were lights, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night. So it could have something as simple as even a... Some kind of light, a pillar of fire that's leading. It's like God led the Israelites, leading the Magi to where Jesus was. So whether it was a literal star or a literal asteroid or some other kind of great light in the sky, God used it to guide the wise men, the Magi, to Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And this great light was likely only seen by the wise men. Why else would they be the only ones, this great light in the sky, why else would they be the only ones who are following it as it moves to Jesus? Not only was it most likely the only seen by the wise men, but it disappeared and then reappeared. We see in verse 9, it says, When they heard the king, this is after they, they went back to, the, they got there in verse 2, he said, Where is he who has been born the king of Jews? For he has seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. So they, they see the star, and now obviously they're not seeing the star anymore because they're coming to people and saying, where is he? And then down in verse 9 we see, when they had heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. So, behold is a word that's, that's to describe something that suddenly appears or catches your attention suddenly, or supposed to, or supposed to anyway. And they follow this star, this great light in the sky, to Jesus, where they found him. So it, it's, they see the east, and then it, they come to the, where Jerusalem is, and they say, well, well, where is he? Where is he? He's born the king of the Jews. And no one gives an answer. And then after they talk to Herod, the star appears. And they follow it to the house where Jesus is. So when, Jesus, when, they, when they got there, did they, something else there? Well, I was just going to say, uh, for them to actually uh, gain... Uh yeah I, I mean I, I think it acts it at least gives credence to the fact that there wasn't just three of them right. there's probably a whole big bunch of them and uh, I think just the fact that they're saying where is the king We've seen a star in the east, and, and the Jews knew this prophecy of Numbers 24:17 of Balaam. So that would have caused some disturbance, and maybe that would have caused the king to see them. Because, you know, let's face it, does the king want to lose his job? I don't think so. I don't think so. So the Magi arrive. Now, was Jesus still a baby in a manger? No? Oh, okay. How old was Jesus when the wise men came to visit him? Were they still living in a cave or a stable as nativity scenes display at Christmas time? 
Uh, we don't know how old Jesus was, but he definitely wasn't a baby in a manger anymore. He is called a young child in verses 8, 9, and 11, as opposed to being called a babe, as he is in Luke chapter 2 and verse 12. He's called a babe when the shepherds come, with swatting cloths in the manger, but when the magi come, he's called a young child. And the Greek word translated as young child literally means a child normally below the age of puberty. That's what it says. It's a very general word. It can be used from someone who's a young child all the way up to someone who's right before the age of puberty. So what? just how far below the age of puberty was he? Well, according to the calculations given to Herod by the wise men in verse 7, he was probably younger than two, since Herod killed all male children of Bethlehem who were under the age of two, in verse 16. As you can see in verse 11, they were no, they were no longer in a cave, let alone a stable, they were in a house, a regular house. The wise men went into the house, they fell down, they worshipped the young child Jesus and gave him gifts. And then God spoke to them in a dream again, and they obeyed again. These magi were a different kind of magi. They listened to God, they heard from God, they fell down and worshipped Jesus who was a, babe, a, a young child at that point in time. And they still humbled themselves as men and bowed down and worshipped the child, and brought him gifts. And even when they were about to leave, God spoke to them again, and they obeyed God again, did not go back to Herod, which of course gives them time to escape. Just a couple more observations regarding this whole situation. Why do you think Herod and all Jerusalem were troubled at the appearance of the wise men asking where the king was? Well, first of all, like we just discussed between me and Tracy, is that they would have known about the prophecy of the star in Numbers 24-17. Secondly, how is it that these Gentile magi were being led to the Messiah, but not us, the people who should know about the Messiah, who have the Scriptures and should be waiting for the Messiah? How is it that they come to them, but we don't? Could something similar like this happen to professing Christians of our day? Well, ever heard of the parable of the ten virgins? Well, there were five wise and five foolish virgins. Five were ready when the groom came. Five were not ready when the groom came. The wise virgins were allowed into the wedding and the door was shut behind them, the Bible says. When the foolish virgins came, they said, Lord, Lord, open to us. Jesus replied, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now notice it doesn't say, I never knew you. As Matthew 7 says, it said, I do not know you. These are... Virgins, which is symbolic of being the bridegroom, waiting for Jesus. But when he finally came, were they ready? No. So it's possible, because Jesus said, I do not know you, that they might have known him at some point in time. But when he finally came back, he said, I did not know you. They were not ready. And Jesus finished, says, surely I say to you, I do not know you. And he, he finishes up by saying, watch therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Are you watching? Are you ready for the Son of Man to come? Which virgin are you, the wise or the foolish? It's not a matter of just watching today or just watching tomorrow. It's a matter of always watching and a matter of always being ready for when he could possibly come back. Just like most of the Jews weren't prepared for the first entrance of the Savior. Many 
in fact, I'd say most professing Christians won't be prepared for the second entry of the Savior. They won't be prepared. And lastly, the reason why all Jerusalem and Herod were troubled, in my opinion, is because King Herod didn't want to give his position as king. He didn't want to give it up. He didn't want to give it to anyone else. He loved his plan for his life. King, treasures, authority, power. But he didn't love God's plan for his life. And he was willing to do anything he could, anything he had to, to keep his way instead of God's way. Even kill possibly thousands of young children, male children, under the age of two. He's willing to sin to keep his plan for his life instead of God's plan for his life. I'll tell you, you step out of God's plan for your life, you step into dangerous territory. You step into an area where you're not under God's protection any longer. You're under no one's protection because you don't have God's authority over your life and protecting you're not walking in His will. So many people are like this. They make their own plans for their life. They get their hearts so set on their plan and their dreams and what they want. They'll do whatever they can to bring it to pass. Even sin. The lie. Some people, this is God's will for my life when they know in their heart it really isn't God's will for their life. And it hasn't been confirmed by other Christians, a congregation of saints who will confirm God's will for their life. Their plans become their idol, their God. Instead, what they should do is Matthew 6.33. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all the things you need will be added unto you. Doesn't God have plans for them? Doesn't God have plans for you? He sure does. And part of laying down our lives, part of taking up our cross and denying ourselves is to submit to God's will for our lives, no matter what the cost is to us, no matter how unpleasing it will be to us. We are bought with a price. We're not our own. We have an owner. His name is Jesus. We are slaves of righteousness. If you're a Christian, they are not our own. We belong to Him. And he's going to be our Savior. He must be our Lord. If he's our Lord, do we tell him no? If you tell, so, if you tell someone you call Lord no, is he really your Lord? That's right. If someone's our Lord, we will obey them. Okay, well that's it for this week. Now next week, uh, I want some feedback from you real quick before we get to questions and objections that you may have. Uh, we have two options. Next week. Now, I was going to include this part in, in this week, but it's, just, it's really a whole sermon in itself. Uh, next week, we can keep on going on in Matthew 2. That's one option. Or, I can do a whole message on when Jesus was born. Month, day, year. I've been doing a lot of studying that lately, but it, it really would take up a whole... I mean, I would have to go on for another probably 45 minutes to talk about this. So, I didn't want to combine it with this message, although I could have. So, I, I want to get some feedback from you between... Not right now, exactly. You can think about it for a little bit. And between now and then, and you can let me know what you think. If you'd like to hear a message on, on Jesus and when he was born, and if that's important to you, I think it's pretty important, considering our cultural decision to you know, celebrate Jesus' birthday, supposedly at least, on, Ma- on December 25th, and call it Christmas. And we can talk about that, or we can just continue on in Matthew 2. So, I, you know, throughout the day, I'll have to hear your f- feedback on that and what, what you think. Uh, so I just wanted to bring that before you. All right, does anyone have any uh, any questions or objections or anything like to add? About why, I don't know if this is the answerable question or not, but why was God 
using these evil men for such a godly moment. Well, I don't think they were evil men. These, these are magi who weren't involved in the cult practices. They, they were probably godly magi. The fact that they were, they were, God would give them dreams at all, and then they would obey the dreams, and then they would come and worship Jesus and give him gifts, and they're obeying God all along the way. It tells me they weren't evil. Uh, now, magi, you know, as a whole, probably are evil for the most part. They're involved in a cult practice. But even Daniel is, is, is a wise man. He was the head of them. So I'm sure, like I said, he had some influence on them. And, you know, you can be an astrologer and not be evil. You can be an interpreter of dreams and have dreams from God and not be evil. But the reason he used the Magi and Gentiles? I rebuke the Jews who were backslidden lots of days ago. They, they didn't see the stars. God, God wasn't using them to see the Messiah. Even when the Magi came and said, where is the king who was born? Did they take a step and go towards Bethlehem and try to find him? They went about their merry way and act like nothing had happened. So they showed their lack of care for the Messiah coming into the world. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, you see the Jews acting in such a way. You know, most Jews, if they pay attention to Jesus at all, it's because they want to get some kind of food for him or they want some miracle done by him. They don't follow him because they, they love him and want to obey him, as we should. So you, you see the Jews as a whole, I think, are backslidden. And uh, part of it is because of Jewish leaders. They're teaching something called Talmud as if it's the truth. People are following that and focusing on that. Um, but as a whole, I think they're just backslidden, the Jewish nation. And the, the, how they respond to Jesus, who is the perfect image of the Father in the flesh, tells you that they didn't become idolaters when Jesus got there by the rejection of him. It tells you their heart state when Jesus got there is that they already were idolaters. They weren't serving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They weren't truly serving Yahweh before Jesus got there. And when Jesus came who is a perfect image of the Father in the flesh, revealed to them what the Father is really like by coming in the flesh, and they rejected Him, they showed their true heart. That they really weren't serving the God of the universe in the first place. Yeah, uh, I just want to kind of add, uh, there's a study uh, called the Maseroth, and that's basically a study of the stars uh, done from the Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, basically, the uh, thing we know as astrology or the zodiac as being evil and as being uh, uh, of the occult is actually a perversion of the original teaching of the Maseroth that came through the Hebrew. So studying of the stars in itself is not evil if it's done the right way. Uh, according to the, the Maseroth teaching I recently read, uh, Pastor Tim Warner believes that it was a memory tool uh, to remind uh, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, of uh, the prophecies uh, and the promise that God is, had given to Abraham. And that's what that's what was seen in the stars, in the constellations. And that's what was known as the Maseroth. Uh, but see, what the uh, uh, occult people have done, what the pagans have done with that, is they perverted that. And instead of using it as a memory tool, uh, they worshipped the stars. And they made the star constellations uh, as gods. Mm -hmm. And that's what made it evil. Is they, they turned it into idolatry and it, they turned it into their pagan practices. Uh, but the actual study of the stars in itself, as long as you're not practicing these idolatrous practices, if you're just using it for the memory tool it is meant for, it's not in itself evil. Yeah, I don't see how the studying of something that God created could be evil. Right. Uh, it's God's creation. And, um, but it, just like anything... 
you worship and serve the creation instead of the creator, then you're involved in wickedness. Right. Uh, just like biologists who turn to evolution or turn to atheism. Uh, you know, that's what happens to them. Uh, but the study of biology itself is not simple, or chemistry, or physics, or any of these other studies of God's creation. Uh, but they can become sinful if those studies, or the thing you are studying, becomes an idol in your life. But yeah, of course, God created the stars. He put them in the place they're in, exactly where they are. And obviously, I haven't studied the Magrath myself, but he obviously did it for a reason, from what you guys are telling me. There's some information in there about, about the birth of Christ, and when we look at it, we decide to do that teaching on uh, the, the birth date. Okay. Date, uh, but scriptures, starting with Virgo and then, uh, Sarah, culminating with Leo, the lion returning. It's like a, it's like a, a celestial clock that you can uh, line up right. with uh, history. And uh, it's very, very interesting teaching. So, uh, Nazareth is mentioned in Job. And of course, Daniel and his, uh, his school, I, I believe that there was probably a school to be established. And uh, they, these wise men would have come from that school and, and uh, would have studied astrology yeah, and I always thought about that. I don't, I don't think I ever really read it anywhere in a commentary like that about this Daniel and the wise men because it just seems to make sense to me. Coming from the East, Daniel, I, I can't imagine Daniel wasting his influence in time with these magi. He had to have used it for godly purposes to turn some of them to the faith and to uh, get them walking with God and, and being the kind of man Daniel was. And the kind of favor he had with God, I'm sure he had a lot of favor with men, and uh, the authority he had, and uh, you know the whole. I don't know if he established a school, but he, he, I'm sure he did something to influence the magi in the right direction. All right. Does anyone else have any other questions? Yeah. That's what the foundation. Uh, I think the uh, conversion isn't that the one where they had the oil in the lamps? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I heard that that's interpreted as the oil in the lamps as being the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that the wise uh, versions they had uh, continued in the Holy Spirit, but the foolish versions uh, that didn't have enough oil uh, basically started out with the Holy Spirit but fell away. And I heard that as an interpretation of that of that parable before. Well, I don't know what you thought about that. Yeah. Well, while, while the the anointing of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit is symbolic to oil at times, you see the anointing with oil in the Old Testament. I don't think we could assume that it always means the Holy Spirit. Um, I mean, if you're gonna if we're gonna say that, then we're gonna say they didn't have the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't got the Holy Spirit, and then they came knocking on the door, because they did go get some oil, but they were too late. Uh, so I think that we can. You, you, when it comes to parables, you have to be real careful how much you're reading into it. Uh, I, I think we, what we can safely assume is they didn't persevere to the end. They didn't have perseverance, and uh, that's what they need. You need to persevere to the end. So when Christ comes back, you need to be living in holiness. And they obviously didn't have them when he came back. They weren't ready. They weren't watching. <clears throat> so I, I think that's what we can safely say we get from the parables, that they simply just weren't watching. They weren't waiting. But the fact that they're called a virgin means they either were an actual virgin waiting for their bride, their bridegroom waiting for the groom at some point in time, or they at least think they are. And they're amongst the other virgins. So there could be some, some tears among the wheat. Or they could have actually been wheat at some point in time and became tares. But I, I think the fact that Jesus says, I don't know you, 
instead of, I never knew, as he said in Matthew 7, gives some credence to the fact that they were actual true virgins or true wheat or true Christians at some point in time. Otherwise, he probably would have said, I, don't, I never knew you, that I don't know you. So, you know, people who, who will say, oh, if someone departs from the faith because God never knew them, Christ never knew them. Well, I, I point them to this, because they always point to Matthew 7. But it's not a matter of either or. It's both and. Someone can backslide from the faith and fall away, and someone could think they're saved and have never have been saved. It's both in the Scriptures. And there's danger in both situations. Not being ready, not watching. And it may even be more dangerous, being deluded into the fact that you think you're a Christian, but you really aren't. That's the biggest illusion you could ever have. To think you're a Christian, think you're on your way to heaven, but you're actually going to go to hell in the end. What a dangerous illusion that is. And they really, and people really do, it's not like a, like they're in their hearts, and it's really, a, they really believe this. They even do things in Jesus' name. As it says in Matthew 7. But they really are his. They never have been. That's why it's really important to go out and preach the gospel here. And when you preach the gospel, someone says they're Christian, you should never take that faith value and go and ask them questions and explore whether or not they really even know what it is to be a Christian. Because of that very situation you just brought up. But they might think they're Christians and not actually be Christians. And through just a little bit of asking questions and investigation, you might find out that even though they say they're Christians, uh, they don't have any of the signs or any of the evidence of them being a Christian. Right. But, you know, it's really important for the preaching to be open Yeah, we ran into a lot of those last night in Nashville. Here in the Bible Belt, you listen to Christians just by going to church or getting baptized. I guess some person told me last night, I got baptized. Oh, you and your preaching someone said to you? If you got baptized, you're just a wet sinner if you're not if you're having repented or trusted in Christ. Just like any sinner taking a bath or a shower. The baptism doesn't do you any good. You know, just like going to a building twice week doesn't do you any good, or praying a prayer after somebody doesn't do you any good if you're not actually living for Christ. But that guy gen- he genuinely believed he was a Christian, didn't he? I mean he even stopped and was like amen in you a couple times and you you started to probe a little bit and that's when he started to run away. But he he really thought he was a Christian. Yeah. Amen. Right, going to Birkin doesn't make you a whopper. Going to Taco Bell doesn't make you a quesadilla. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the way it works. But even even that saying I go to church is really a false way of saying it because you don't go to church. Either you are the church or you aren't the church. The church isn't a building you go to. That's a church meeting place. The church in the Bible is the Greek word ecclesia, which is the called out ones. Not the called out building that the ones go to. The called out ones. So I am the church. Are you part of the church? I'm not talking about going to a building with people who you hang out with and you sing songs together with, are you truly part of the Ecclesia, the called out ones, who've been called out from sin and called to Jesus Christ to live and follow Him? That's what you must be to be a part of the church. 